Today, answers matter more than ever before. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage customer questions with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to work for any industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant. Impactful stories from the biggest names in the game. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Now, here's Jeremy Schaap. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. This week, we're talking about what's been going on in America for the last two weeks. The anger and frustration, the outrage, the protests, the way sports has intersected with these issues since George Floyd's death at the hands of the Minneapolis police. We'll be speaking with several prominent writers and with Maya Moore, the WNBA star an advocate for criminal justice reform. Our first guest is a longtime national sports columnist for 25 years at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, now writing for Forbes.com, Terrence Moore. Terrence, thanks for joining us again here on The Sporting Life. Well, thank you for having me, and particularly during these really uh, turbulent times, but hopeful, hopeful times, too. One of the things we've seen in the last... 10, 11 days, Terrence, we've seen a lot of figures from the world of sports speaking out, making their voices heard, hearkening back um, to a different era, uh, really, of more involvement and activism on the part of athletes, although that's something we have been seeing in the last six years in particular with the Black Lives Matter movement. What would have been your thoughts about the role that athletes and sports can play uh, in what's going on right now? Yeah, you know, I, I love what I'm seeing because I was very discouraged there for decades. You know, you had the uh, the uh, Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley era. Charles Barkley, I am not a role model, and we all know about Michael Jordan and and his statements about uh, sneakers and Republicans and what have you that he finally uh, fessed up to here the other day. Uh, but I've always been uh, a fan of those people uh, like a Muhammad Ali or, or Jackie Robinson, or Hank Aaron, Arthur Ashe. Those were my heroes growing up as an African-American in the 60s and, and how they were outspoken and, and uh, just came out and, and, and said what they thought when it came to social injustice. And now we're getting back to that. And, 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 I, and I'll tell you, the one, the one guy that I just don't want to get lost, in, get lost in the shuffle here is LeBron James. Uh, you know, LeBron James is really, really the guy who became the 21st century of those legends I just named before because he, even going back to, I think of like the Trayvon Martin situation in 2012, he was out there basically alone. He started bringing teammates along with him with the Miami Heat, like a Dwayne Wade and what have you. But all the way through, for the last decade or so, he's been, been right here in the, in the cause of these things, even before Colin Kaepernick. And uh, and so now we're seeing it, it build from there, and it's a beautiful thing. We're speaking with Terrence Moore of Forbes.com. You can see his work in other outlets as well, including FalconsSI.com. Um, you know, why, why does it matter um, that athletes speak up? African-American athletes and uh, white athletes as well. Yeah, you, you know, first it goes back to something. And for me, being a Christian, you know, and and uh, uh, one of the things that is very um, prevalent in the Bible is about how important it is for 
for all of us to do what we do our part in making us a better world and however way you want to put it. And even if you're not a Christian, that is just something just uh, just a human being should be all about. And this kind of ties into going back to the Charles Barkley thing back in the early 1990s when he said that, he, that I am not a role model, which was really irritating to me. And he and I have gone back and forth on this through the years in various media forms. But that really bothered me in the sense that we're all role models, whether you like it or not. And the more visible you are, the more of a role model you're going to be. And certainly from an African-American standpoint, uh, there is the need for role models when you look at uh, uh, the things that have been going on in our communities forever with the, the single-parent households and just uh, um, uh, some of the negative images that's been out there for, for uh, through the media, through the, through the years, through the decades, what have you. And then you've got these athletes. They're the most visible people in the African-American community, rightfully or wrongfully. So it becomes even more imperative for every African-American athlete, whether they like it or not, and particularly the more high-profile they are, to, to be a positive force. And then, as you say, it, and that's also true for white athletes, just from a, just an overall viewpoint that we are all role models, but it really particularly becomes more important for the black athlete, uh, given everything I just said. George Floyd grew up in Houston with Steven Jackson, spent more than a decade playing in the NBA. Um, we've seen Steven Jackson um, a lot over the course of the last week talking about his friend George Floyd, talking about how he's going to take care of uh, his daughter, Gigi. Um what is what is what has been going through your mind as we've seen Stephen Jackson, uh, in some ways, embody our collective grief about what happened to George Floyd? You know, it's not surprising to me at all. I know Stephen Jackson. Stephen Jackson lives here in Atlanta. Stephen Jackson played for the Hawks for a stretch, and Stephen Jackson has always been that type of person—a very sincere uh, person with a deep beliefs and convictions, and of course, everybody remembers the uh, the malice in the palace, of course, with, you know, back when he played for the Pacers and the, and that horror story in Detroit, uh, but that being aside, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a man of deep emotions, and you know, and so you see that, uh, 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 and you see other uh, athletes like LeBron and his school, uh, uh, Mayweather, and uh, you know, paying for the funeral here, and 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 other funerals, by the way, that Floyd has paid for, uh, and you've got, uh, you, in in other words, there still are have been are and have been a lot of African American athletes and athletes in general. You know, let's expand it to just athletes in general who have done a lot of good when it comes to uh, you know uh, just helping their communities. Uh, even beyond just the social, trying to stop social injustice. So it's very heartwarming, it's very encouraging, and it should give us uh, even more hope when you see that Steven Jackson being as involved as he has been uh, with the uh, the family of his friend, George Floyd. We're speaking with Terrence Moore, longtime national sports columnist. He's now at Forbes.com. Um, you know, Terrence, you've been writing about these issues for a long time, and you've seen so much in your lifetime. The last 10 days, there's been anger and frustration 
there's been rage, there's been um, protest. Um, you say there's hope as well. On an emotional level, what are the things you're feeling now? Yeah, you know, let me start with this. I live in Atlanta now. I've lived in Atlanta now for the last 35 years. Uh, grew up in South Bend, Indiana, home of the University of Notre Dame. When I grew up in the 60s in South Bend, Indiana, it was like being a, 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 in Leave it to Beaver land, even for black and white, because it was not really a, uh, no racial issues for the most part. I grew, always grew up in, in integrated schools, you know, with the parents the same way, you know, growing up in South Bend. And then my dad was AT&T supervisor. He got transferred around a, a lot in my teenage years to Cincinnati, Chicago, Milwaukee. That's when we started seeing a lot of racism at that point and didn't really uh, quite understand it in the early years. But uh, but Atlanta was interesting, and, and like I said, I've been here for 35 years. And when I came here from the San Francisco, San Francisco Examiner to Atlanta Journal-Constitution as the first black sports columnist in the history of the South, I was only the third uh, black sports columnist in the history of major newspapers. This was back in January of 1985. And I mention all this because the first person who called me on the phone at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution was Maynard Jackson, the legendary mayor of Atlanta to welcome me to town. The second person to welcome me to town was Dr. Joseph Lowry, who was the second person uh, to take over the Southern Christian Leadership Council. And the first person was a guy by the name of Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> uh, the King family I know very well. Uh, Andrew Young is a good friend of mine, Ambassador Andrew Young. Uh, so I mentioned those people because it was all about nonviolence. It was all about having a strategy. It was all about uh, go, looking intelligently at race relations and, 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 and ways to try to get people to understand that we're all in this together. So to see the violence that was taking place here, at least in the beginning here in Atlanta, was disheartening from that aspect and also across the country and what have you, and it was very discouraging because this is, uh, was named the city too busy to hate. But here's where the hope comes. The hope comes in this. Friday was a very, very volatile day here in Atlanta, where even the CNN Center, people were, were breaking glasses there. But the last three or four days since Friday has been considerably calmer. Yeah, I should just say, we're speaking now on Thursday afternoon, just, just so people have a, a reference, a time reference. But go ahead. Yes, yes. And, and people have been very reflective uh, as to uh, what we should, where we should go from here. No, one, no one's got all the answers, but at least there's, there's a dialogue that's taken place. Bernice King, who I know well, uh, Dr. King's uh, youngest child, uh, she's a minister. She's been a calming voice. So when I see those things, I'm seeing, I'm seeing echoes of the 1960s uh, the positive side of the 1960s in the sense of where the, the Dr. King's, uh, the I Have a Dream speech and, this, and those type of things, we're kind of seeing that sort of spirit coming forth, not to say it's, 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 it's something that's going to happen overnight, but that is what gives me hope. Terrence, thank you so much uh, for being with us this week and sharing your thoughts. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And anytime you need me, just let me know. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. 
We're continuing our conversation about race and protest in the wake of the death of George Floyd last week at the hands of the Minneapolis police. We're joined now by an old friend of mine, one of the most distinguished sports writers in America. Having spent 33 years at the New York Times, he is now a writer at large for the undefeated, and he is the author of, among other books, $40 Million Slaves, William C. Roden. Bill, thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks, Jeremy. And it was 34 years because, you know, you, you know, you got to we got to take every inch, man, <laughs> every inch of credibility. So that one year, I work hard, I, I work hard for that one year, brother. I, are you telling me Wikipedia was wrong? It's at 83 to 16. I, I, I apologize. Bill. I think it was a, it's, a, it's a conspiracy. <laughs> 34 years at the New York Times. That's right. And Bill, you know, all those years, um, you know, on the sports reporters and you and my dad would talk about these issues on the show, the issues that have been roiling the country that we've been discussing in the now we're speaking on Thursday, 10 days since George Floyd died in police custody after Derek Chauvin pressed his knee into Floyd's neck, that that horrific video. What what thoughts have been uppermost in your mind during this period? Uh. Yeah, Jeremy, I've had so many thoughts. I mean, I guess my larger thought is, I guess one of my biggest, greatest fears is that we just continue to inch toward this uh, authoritarianism, authoritarian uh, government, a totalitarian government. Uh, and I'm just concerned that a lot of my sort of colleagues, fellow Americans, particularly some of you know, my white brothers, you know, don't really see this thing coming. Don't see this this threat. You know, kind of in denial. I, I think maybe what we're seeing, in a way, in terms of this outpouring of, of of people in the street, particularly you know young white kids and students in the street, maybe underlines you know the fact that maybe a lot of that generation does see this threat, a, a larger threat to their freedom that goes beyond uh, you know goes beyond what party you belong to and that kind of stuff. So that's those are my thoughts. And I guess my other thought though, is that I've seen these things before and particularly again, when a lot of, you know, white brothers and sisters are involved and I've seen it, you know, when you get tired, when they get tired of it, they can always, okay, I'm tired. of this. Let me go back to being white, <laughs> you know, or when it gets too hot, let me go back to being white and privileged and all that kind of stuff. So I, I my thoughts, I just hope this is this sustained, moral indignation and moral pressure uh, continues. We're speaking with William C. Roden. And, Bill, you were a college student in the 1960s. Um, Quote, unquote. You saw that turmoil. You saw all of that up close. You were a you were a football player at a historically black college, Morgan State in Baltimore. How, how do you compare um, the movement then uh, to what we're seeing now? Well, I think it's, I think, it, it, you know, again, I was 18, 19, 20, so I was, you know, silly and nuts, too. Uh, I think it's much more broad-based now. I think that the uh, the evils of this society uh, are grasped by a larger group of people back in 68. And remember, you know, I was informed by Muhammad Ali, uh, you know, by Jim Brown on the Cleveland Summit by, um, uh, you know, um, the Black Panthers, by Kurt Flood, who took on baseball. So so during that period of time, 
there was this tumult. There, you know, there, there was there was tension and there was a black uprising, black consciousness. Uh, although even with Tommy Smith and John Carlos who tried to tell people on the stand in Mexico City that this is not just about black people. This is about freedom for all people. And I think back then, you know, the voice was drowned out. Oh, that's a black thing. I think now many more people uh, across the world are realizing that black people only represent a profound truth. Black people in America simply represent a profound truth about the hypocrisy of a democracy built on the backs of, of, of slavery, that, that such a country really does not have a soul. So I think that there is a larger degree of people who want to really search for an American soul, create American soul, because we really love the, the dream of this experiment. So, I, so I, I just think that the difference between then and now is maybe there's a larger and painful recognition of the painful truth about our country. You mentioned Ali and Jim Brown. You were a friend of Arthur Ashe's. Um, you knew so many of the important figures in the civil rights movement, especially those who were also figures in the world of sports. The fact that we're um, where we are now in 2020, and Arthur Ashe died 28 years ago. Um, what, what do you think? What do you think he would think that this is the state of affairs now? Well, I, I think that um, what they all realize, you know, Arthur uh, is that. You know, this is an existential, never-ending battle. You know, I think that sometimes, you know, just like we talk about the pandemic, is that when when we're over this, and I think that's probably the wrong approach. I think that um, what we're fighting against and resisting this deeply seated uh, racism, which is uh, connected to uh, economics and 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 the, and the wealthy getting more and greed and that kind of stuff. That's just a, a, a built into the uh, cornerstone of our country. And to root it out means digging into the foundation of our country. And that's never-ending, Jeremy. That's a never-ending uh, battle, unfortunately. You know, if, if you look at those, those pictures, you know, of the South, of those white mobs smiling and standing underneath the pictures of lynched black people. Well, you know, a lot of those, a lot of those people, obviously all them are dead, but a lot of their grandchildren and great grandchildren are who, who, who hold some of those same latter day views are still alive, still fighting that same battle. You see them in Virginia with the Confederate flag, with the Nazi insignia and all that. Those people are still here. You know, so I think that, uh, what they say, what I say today is that, man, this battle is just never, never ending. And I think that's what probably uh, made Drew Brees' uh, comments infuriating. Speaking with Bill Roden, writer at large for the undefeated author of, among many books, $40 million Slaves. And, um, <laughs> uh, Bill, you mentioned Drew Brees' comments that he made to Yahoo about the flag and protest on uh, Wednesday, Thursday, he apologized for those comments after very strong reaction from people in sports and beyond criticizing those comments. Um, what did you think of his apology? Um, I think that when we talk about having to have tough 
conversations about racism in this country. It goes both ways. You know, we've got to hear tough conversations from people who disagree with us. Uh, and I think there's, there could be a, a, a righteous objection to those of us who feel entitled sort of to the truth or a moral high ground that we don't really have to listen, that, that having a tough conversation about racism only goes one way. That is us preaching, the other people listening. But that tough conversation goes both ways. We got to listen. We have to have them lay it out, even if we go, you know, pick it apart, try to educate. So with Drew, you know, I mean, he's, what he said, he said then 2016 when Colin Kaepernick first began protesting, he said the same thing about the flag. I think he was misguided then. He's misguided now. He apologized maybe for not articulating himself, but I think that you got to listen to it. I'm not saying I got to say accept his apology, but it's the beginning of a of a dialogue. Bill, I know you got to run. Uh, it uh, it means a lot to us that you came on the show this week to talk about these issues. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Jeremy. Yeah. No. Thank you. Thank you very much for keeping this stuff uh, alive and open and and uh, you know facilitating dialogue this is the sporting life on espn radio and the espn app in the wake of the death of george floyd there have been massive protests across the u.s demonstrators demanding change demanding criminal justice reform protesting systemic racism these are issues deeply familiar to former WNBA MVP Maya Moore, one of the most decorated and gifted players ever in women's basketball. Two NCAA titles at UConn, two Olympic gold medals, four WNBA titles with the Minnesota Lynx. Last year, she stepped away from basketball, at least temporarily at the age of 29, in order to help a man she believes to have been wrongly convicted of a serious crime. When he was 16, Jonathan Irons, who's African-American, was convicted of burglary and shooting a homeowner and sentenced to 50 years in prison. A decade later, in 2007, Moore's family would first get to know Irons as an inmate through a prison ministry. They would come to believe he was innocent. After years of working on his behalf, Moore decided to take 2019 off from basketball to focus on freeing Irons. She helped finance his appeals and attended all his hearings. In January, the work not yet done, she announced she'd also skip this WNBA season and the 2020 Olympics. Then in March, a Missouri judge overturned Irons' conviction, setting the stage for his release after spending 23 years in prison. But the Missouri Attorney General's office has appealed the ruling, and for now, Irons remains incarcerated. On Thursday, I spoke with Maya Moore for Outside the Lines. Maya, what can you tell us? What's the latest on Jonathan Irons and his situation? Yeah, Jonathan, um, unfortunately, is still uh, in prison. He's still behind bars. We got the best news that we could have gotten um, earlier in March, where a circuit judge overturned Jonathan's conviction. And then we got even better news uh, at the end of April when the appellate court, uh, three appellate judges, overwhelmingly uh, gave their opinion that the circuit judge was correct, that Jonathan's case lacks integrity. There are so many uh, things wrong with the integrity of Jonathan's case. And um, they actually responded with a 27-page response of, of, of saying how uh, legitimate uh, overturning conviction, overturning Jonathan's conviction is and how he absolutely has a Brady violation 
which means evidence was withheld at his original trial. And so we are very excited that so many judges are now shining a light on what we've seen for years. But we're just so heartbroken and disappointed in the attorney general of Missouri and how they're continuing uh, to fight against the facts of the case. Maya, as we've said, you know these issues. You've been protesting racial profiling and advocating for criminal justice reform for years now. With that in mind, how have you been experiencing the events of the last 10 days here in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. It's been overwhelming, just like any any other human being watching what's going on. But I also think our family uh, has been uh, in this marathon of, uh, of a battle for uh, an actual case of justice uh, connected with the root of these issues, which stems back to our human trafficking past as a country with the transatlantic slave trade and how uh, those roots and that culture is still uh, in our in our modern day and how that shows itself uh, through policing, through uh, prosecutorial misconduct, through uh, numerous things that are systematically in place and just culturally, heart-wise, spiritually, it's, it's so embedded and still of who we are. And so I think right now we're having our eyes open to the bad news of what's going on. But also, I think now people are also able to have their eyes on the good news of where we can go and who we can become uh, now that we've actually are starting to acknowledge where we are. Maya Moore, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care. I was also joined this week on Outside the Lines by former Knicks and Grizzlies head coach David Fisdale. Fisdale wrote an essay for the undefeated titled A Voice for the Voiceless. David, you've written an essay for The Undefeated about what you are feeling right now as you and your wife are about to bring a son into the world, your fears, your hopes, about the importance as well of speaking up. What exactly was the message you wanted to convey in your essay? We can't tear people down uh, that are actually trying to to protest the right way. A guy like Colin Kaepernick uh, took a knee and he was trying to speak to us before we got to this point. And as a, as a, a black coach in this league, uh, you know, I was I was in a pickle of how do I how do I support him, but at the same time don't get the backlash of of the corporate world. And I and and it was just feelings that I felt inside of myself that I know a lot of other my uh, a lot of other young black coaches feel, a lot of young black executives feel that uh, you know they don't want to lose their careers or put their careers at risk. Uh, because that's how they feed their family. Um, but I just was trying to get the message out that it's necessary to allow people of color, uh, people that are discriminated against, um, to allow them to to speak out and be able to be heard in a, in a classy and distinguished way. David, what has it been like the last week watching so many prominent NBA players speak up on the issues? I have a great sense of pride. I'm very proud of our players. Um, again, we have a, a league full of of young men who care about their communities, who care about each other. You know, that's I think that was a big reason why us coaches felt like we needed to step up because, you know, 77% of our league is African-American, and a, and a lot of these young men, uh, their communities are the ones that's inflicted by this. And, and so impacted by this. So we just felt the real uh, call to duty uh, to step up and speak out and not only speak out, but but 
come up with some real action steps that we could uh, execute from our platform. The Knicks, the team you used to coach, uh, is the only team other than the Spurs not to issue a statement on the events of the last week. And the Spurs head coach, Greg Popovich, did uh, make very strong statements to the Nation magazine. Jim Dolan, in an internal memo, saying this isn't something that he thought the Garden should talk about publicly. I know uh, you're still under contract to the Knicks. You can't talk about that. But at the same time, as a member of this Coaches Association committee, how do you intend to make change happen? Well, collectively, I think, you know, one, I'm just a cog in the machine. Uh, Lloyd Pierce was the one that really galvanized this and brought it to Rick Carlisle and the Coaches Association and, and really pushed forward the agenda of, of really stepping up and speaking out. Uh, you know, the thing that I, I am most proud of with this group is, is that as enraged and, and, and as, as frustrated as the black coaches are, uh, our white coaches and coaches of other ethnicities are just as enraged and ashamed and, and they really want to do things that's going to help. And I think the things that we're going to try to do is collaborate with, with not only the association, our players and Adam Silver in the league office and things like that, uh, but, but community leaders, uh, law enforcement leaders, uh, local officials, uh, we're going to try to, to collaborate with them on, on action steps that can create real change in our community. David Fisdale, former head coach of the Grizzlies and the Knicks. Thanks so much for joining us here on OTL and Sports Center. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. And for more, you can read David Fisdale's essay at theundefeated.com. This is the Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. And we are continuing to talk about America in the wake of the death of George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis police last week. Talk about protest and athletes involvement in what is going on right now. We welcome to the show one of our favorite and most frequent contributors, an ESPN senior writer. You can also hear him on NPR Weekend Edition Saturday. Among his many excellent books, Full Dissidents, The Heritage, Sisters and Champions, The Last Hero, Shut Out. And there are so many more. Howard Bryant joins us. Howard, thank you for being with us. Hey, Jeremy. Howard, um, you know, I, I've been following you this week on Twitter um, and last week. And, of course, we've known each other a long time. And, and I really just want to start by asking you, um, how are you how are you processing everything that's been going on? Well, I think that it's. I, on the one hand, Jeremy, we do this every day, right? I mean, I think that I, I think there's an interesting place for us as journalists, number one, that when there's disasters and when there's crises, we get in the middle of it and we try to make sense of it and we try to do this. We, we do this for the public because it's our jobs. And then sometimes we forget to do it for ourselves because we are supposed to be out there covering this and giving people the information that they need. What's been really interesting for me during this period is now that I'm a parent with a 15-year-old, through his eyes, it's been really different because now he wants to go out there. I mean, one, he's been cooped up in the house for three months, and two, you're seeing this moment in time affect his generation, and they have an idea of what they want this world to look like, and 
And he came in the house the other day and was talking about how I'm going to the protest. I'm like, what protest? And he says, oh, there's a protest out, you know, at three o'clock and I'm going. And I'm like, All right, no, I'm, I would rather you ask. <laughs> so then instead of tell me that you're going. And, you know, it was very interesting because I realized that with all the things that I write about, about accountability and about my worldview and how I see this country and how I see this world, it was very difficult for me to try to say to him, how am I going to tell him he can't go out and be a part of this? How can I say, of all people, how can I say to him, no, you can't go out in the street, where I tell people in my projects, this is where you need to go in times of crisis. So we went out together. And it was interesting being out there. Of course, there were a few things that hit me. Number one, I was thinking to myself, aren't we in the middle of a pandemic? So you've got 1,500 people out there all wearing masks, but they're eight inches apart from each other. And so I'm like, I, I guess social distancing has gone out the window. But then you also see here in, you know, lovely Northampton, Massachusetts, 1,500 kids, all, you know, black, white, mostly majority white, camped out in front of the police station. And then you look downstairs and you see the police in, with their riot shields and canine dogs and everything else in the canine units. And I'm thinking, Something could go off here. I mean, this is actually starting to feel a little dangerous. I was happy that nothing happened, that there was no escalation. But it was certainly another example of how close we are, that we're in the middle of something right now. And, and we have to confront being in the middle of it instead of constantly talking about bordering on or nearing. We are in the middle of something that this generation hadn't seen before. We're speaking with Howard Bryant and Howard, um, I had a conversation earlier in the week with David Fisdale, head coach and assistant coach in the NBA for 17 years. And he wrote an essay for the undefeated where you write as well. Um, he wrote an essay about his feelings about this moment as um, someone who was a high schooler in LA at the time of uh, Rodney King. And now he's, he's got a baby on the way and, and his, his fears um, and his hopes. um, But especially from the perspective as a parent and, and you have a 15 year old as, as a father, um, as a father of, you know, uh, uh, of an African-American boy in this society, 15-year-old, who wants to go out there and wants to have his voice heard and be part of the protests. What, what, is, it, what is it like dealing with um, these situations? Well, it's chilling. It's frightening as hell because you realize, and I told him, I said, okay, I'm going to let you go out there. I'm going to go out there with you. But I had to come back in and do some work for, for ESPN so I said, okay, I'm going to leave you out here, but I don't want you on the front lines. I don't want you anywhere near the front. I want you to observe. I want you to watch. I want you to see. And while I came back in and had to do my Zoom talk, you could feel this thing escalating because then they started marching in front of the house, in front of City Hall. And so the chants were getting louder and louder. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm in the house. I have no idea where this kid is right now. And and you know, then a few people, I guess, had spray-painted the side of the police station and I'm, and I'm and I don't know any of this yet because I'm in the house doing an interview and so when I finally get back outside I notice that they're all in front of the police station again and you can see the graffiti on the side that wasn't there when when, when I had been out there so in the span of about an hour things had totally escalated and then of course I finally 
you know, wade through the crowd and I find him and he's sitting there taking a knee. Um, I think it's, I, I think it's, it's frightening, but I also think there's something else at work, at work here too, Jeremy. And that is as much as we focus on the effects of all of this on African-Americans, what you're really seeing is an effect on the democracy. You're looking at this country, and if you look at all of the different video clips and footage around the country, especially New York and D.C., you're looking at a whole lot of white people out there in the streets, and you're looking at a whole lot of white people out there in the streets getting, getting hit by police and being clubbed and having you know, their bikes stolen and getting pushed over and being shot at you know, in Minneapolis with rubber bullets and with pepper spray and, and, and smoke canisters and everything else. So I caution people to, to think of the, to not think of this as a black issue. It's not a black issue. This is an authority issue. And what you're seeing right now, whether it is the unmarked, unidentified, you know, law enforcement people in, in D.C. who won't tell you if they're, you know, what branch of government they're from or from the military they're from. And when you see the police in the riot gear and you see you see that the National Guard is standing in front of the Lincoln Memorial, essentially pointing their weapons at American citizens. This is an everybody issue right here. And this is not something that is relegated to black people. It's a, a, it's a question when we look at this as once more, we are told to respect the authority of the nation. We are told that to let the laws work. And what, we, what we're seeing here is a reaction when those very laws aren't put into place, that it took protest, it took people in the street to get those four officers in Minneapolis arrested. Never mind charged or convicted, just to get them arrested, it took protest in the streets. So what does that really say about the fidelity of these laws and about the about the, the strength of these bonds? And that's where I look at this country. And when you ask me if I'm afraid, I'm not afraid for being a black person. We've been dealing with this the whole time. We're always afraid. We're, I was afraid whether it was 92 with Rodney King when I was in California or whether it was Ferguson or whatever. The real issue is, is that this is something that has has transcended the entire country. Howard, in terms of sports, what we've been seeing um, from figures uh, in the sports community, athletes, coaches in the last 10 days, where does it fit into the history of activism uh, from from the world of sports? I'm not sure it does in some ways. And I think the reason is, is because the corporate pressure on the game is so much more pronounced today than it was before because of all of these different cross-pollinating partnerships and everything else. And so you're seeing these, these massive sort of sweeping statements that we're all in it together, whereas before teams stayed out of that stuff. And so when you had unrest, the teams acted as if they weren't even really part of the society in a lot of ways. But today, that's very different. Today, all your corporate partners are out there putting out slogans and statements and everything else to show that they're on the right side of these issues, to show their constituencies and their fan bases that they are indeed part of the solution. So now what does that do? What does that do for the industry of sports that you've created? Part of me believes, Jeremy, that this is the end of, of the 9-11 era of sports. How on earth right now 
can you reopen the game with a law enforcement appreciation night? How on earth can you, at a time when the National Guard is pointing its weapons at American citizens, how can you have a military appreciation night at a ballpark when, when the games do reopen? Part of me thinks that what we're really recognizing, in addition to not knowing what the game is going to look like, whether or not guys can high five or whether fans are going to wear masks, on top of that, the entire sort of culture is going to look very, very different, very, very differently now if you're watching a game and, and players are wearing camouflage jerseys because it, it lands very differently with all of this unrest. So I think there's an opportunity now as well to see what is going to, you know, what does this new era of sports look like? How is it the game going to be packaged? How is it going to be sold? On another, another side, I think with the Drew Brees issue, you're also seeing the, the ahistorical or actually the historical link of white players not getting involved. And now there seems to be a demand that they actually be part of it in some, in some way, because historic, yeah, historically, People look at activism and they look at, they look at social issues as a black player problem, as a black issue, and that the, you know, how come Tiger Woods hasn't done more? How come Michael Jordan hasn't done more? Let's talk about what Tommy Smith and John Carlos and Ali did do. But nobody says, well, gee, where was Joe Namath on this issue? Where was Bob Greasy? Where was Joe Montana? Where were they? No one asked that question. And now you're starting to see guys like, you know, even Braden Holtby, um, out there, the goalie with the with the Washington Capitals, came out and made a great uh, statement on social media the other day. I think I think more and more players are realizing, and maybe it's more the moment itself um, that they're recognizing that we all have to say something. I think everyone is feeling that this moment is a very very special one in an election year with a pandemic, with more violence, that we are on the brink of something that we all have to pay really close attention to. Howard Bryant, senior writer for ESPN uh, and a frequent guest here on The Sporting Life. Howard, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your thoughts this week. No, my pleasure, Jeremy. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.